You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to now invite you, as is our custom, to open the Bible with me. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to see a paperback Bible uh, even in the tray of the chair that's in front of you. I want you to hopefully take that even as a gift. If you don't own a Bible, let, take that. Let, make that even a gift to someone you know who might not own a Bible. We want to, you can't steal it. We're giving them away. Um, but if you have a smartphone or some other way to join me, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. That's the Matthew, the gospel, literally the good news of Jesus, the first of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the first book of the New Testament. And so uh, Matthew, one of Jesus' own disciples, called out of his own way of life, has been teaching us about Jesus. He's been pointing us to what Jesus is like. And so we, we, uh, we see here this kind of powerful display of who Jesus is and what he has done according to Matthew. And, and he's already told us about the miraculous birth and the miraculous introduction to public ministry of Jesus and, and even the most popular and well-known teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And, and he's introduces to Jesus even through miraculous and powerful works to call people to follow them. And, and in the previous chapter, he sent out his disciples and therefore all people who would follow Jesus to expect adversity, to expect difficulty. And what we find in chapters 11 and 12 are similar to if you were with us several years ago as we walked through the Gospel of John, is that Matthew is introducing us to Jesus by introducing us to people who didn't get Jesus. That is, he, he kind of wants us to get Jesus, and the way he helps to illustrate that is to tell us stories about people who did not get Jesus. And so the, the tone of 11 and 12 is pretty somber. That is, think of 11 and 12 as stories of unfavorable responses to Jesus, including the very first story we saw last week, even of John the Baptist, who we'll hear more about today. But, but think of them as parables of, of kind of what not to do, or at the very least, what it might be to misunderstand and not get Jesus, so that you and I would begin to have a, an imagination full of ideas what it means to get Jesus. Here, here's a parable, for example. Once upon a time, uh, a man came to my house right? Maybe I'll say it in the third person, so it'll be more like a parable. Uh, a man came to Jonathan's house, right? And Jonathan welcomed him into the house, but the man would not take off his shoes. And so Jonathan cast him out into the street where there was much weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Did you get, did you get the parable? Come to my house, take off your shoes, right? You get the idea, right? But, but the idea is that, oh, that I, I see it by, by seeing what it is to not see it, And so Matthew is introducing us to people who don't quite see Jesus, at least not in the moment, so that you and I would see clearly who Jesus is and what he has come to do. So I'm going to reread the the six verses that introduced this entire chapter. We're going to read all the way through verse 19, uh, where we saw last week the introduced to Jesus by John the Baptist, who begins the whole discourse of this chapter with a question, who Jesus is. And through it, we find out who John is, and I believe even who we are. So beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he 
of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like a children. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him. A glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Pray God inhabits these words. They become more than ink on a page. They become God's voice to us. Who are you? I mean, really, who are you? And if someone, before you leave this building even today, were to ask you that, how would you answer it? Who are you, really? Who are you? Maybe some questions that would follow from that is like, how would I even come to know who it is that I am? Uh, maybe a question that, that might be good for you to, to think on is, what would you have to know in order to know who it is that you really are? And something that might benefit all of us is, how would I know if I was getting to know the real you? Who are you? And I want to commend to you the example of Jesus here in a, what I would say is a confrontational, as we saw last week, even potentially offensive way of knowing who you are. This chapter begins with John asking Jesus about him, and the chapter goes on as Jesus tells everyone else about John. Last week, we saw that the kingdom is coming and it's visible it's visible in what Christ was doing for the weak, for the hopeless, for those who were in desperate need. And the question, John's question, concerns the identity of Jesus. But the response, even for the rest of the chapter, concerns the identity of John and even us. So John's question concerned the identity of Jesus. Jesus' answer concerns the identity of John. And last week we saw that questions to Jesus about if Jesus is the one, the one who he says he is, then naturally we will be offended by what we hear. He is the one, the, the source of all good things. But if last week was an introduction and a warm-up for the offensiveness of Jesus and his claims, then potentially this week is peak offensiveness of Jesus. And in the middle of this passage, the, the little phrase that it is difficult to translate, much less explain. We'll spend as much time as we can thinking it through. Did you hear it? That the kingdom of God is suffering violence and violent ones are taking it by force. So, I ask again, and I hope it kind of sits in the background as we walk through this passage where John is explained by Jesus, who are you? And who has the right to say? Who really has the right to answer that question anyway? And I want to pose to you that Jesus does. So you'll see those two things. A question about who Jesus is and the answer about who John is. So let's begin to walk through this. You remember last week, the first six verses, John is in prison. 
He has gone out preaching a, a, a message of repentance that the kingdom has come near. People should turn, turn lest they experience judgment. And yet, as he preaches that, we find out that the people in power, namely the family of Herod, throws John in prison. In prison to the point where he will be later beheaded. This is where he'll die. And so naturally, his circumstances made him question if what he knew about Jesus was really true. As we saw last week, those questions are welcomed. Questions to Jesus are welcomed. Keep asking them. Don't let up on them. And maybe you're from a tradition where we're asking questions of a skeptic or questions of doubt are, are, are not welcome. I commend to you the Psalms where we're shown how to cry out to God for answers, and then I commend to you the response of Jesus, where Jesus is not shocked and he doesn't rebuke John. Like, who are you to question me? But instead, he begins to say, look at the signs. Look at where the kingdom is coming for the people who are hopeless and in need. And when you see that, you'll realize what it is that's happening. After all, one of the things he said that would be a sign is that he was bringing sight to the blind. Uh, many of you familiar with the Bible will know that nowhere in the Old Testament is someone, in this case like this, healed of blindness, and you never see it again. It's, it's as, as if to say there's something really special here about the kingdom come in Christ. So the first thing I want us to learn is, as Jesus begins to tell us about John, and then therefore us, I believe, is that Jesus ultimately tells us who we are, not the other way around. Maybe I'll say it this way. You don't know who you are unless you know who Jesus is. When you go to Jesus to find out who he is, an amazing thing will happen. He will help you see who you really are. Now, functionally, down the road, we saw this as we were walking him through it several years ago through, uh, through, through Paul's letter to the Colossians, is that once you know who you are, then you know what to do. And most of us kind of come into the room and, and wonder what we should do next, right? You're, you're looking at the next week or the next decision, and you're like, what do I do next? What, what decision do I make? And, and I, I think that's a great place to start, and yet I want to commend to you the possibility that the reason you don't know what to do is because you don't know really who you are. And once you know who you are, you know exactly what to do. Well, how do I find that out? We find here that we look to Jesus to get it. Is that offensive? Is that controversial? Absolutely. Brace yourself. He says, ultimately, that, that his response is to, for John and for his disciples to look at what was happening. But what you see is John coming to Jesus to find out who Jesus is. And what does Jesus do? He tells John and the rest of the people who John is. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Did you hear that? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? And then he gives us some rhetorical questions. And we're meant to think about what we've already learned in the first couple of chapters of Matthew about John. A man who was living in a, in a prophetic tradition, out wearing strange, strange fur, camel's hair, and eating a strange diet, right? Uh, locusts and wild honey, right? This guy was granola, man. This guy was hardcore. This guy, like some people camp for fun. This guy, that's just, just his life, right? He doesn't know that camping. There's no such thing as camping for John. It's just living. And so John, is a, he's a different kind of guy. He is intentionally living against the grain, living outside of what were the norms of culture, quite literally outside of even the city limits. And so people would go out to him to, in this desolate place, living in the desert, living in a strange way, to hear this message of a call to repentance because the kingdom was on the way. And so when, he, when Jesus asks rhetorically, he's like, well, what'd you go out to see? Did you go out to just see a normal person? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? As if to say, like, what did you go out to the prairie to see? Did you, see the, did you want to go with the, to see the grass being blown by the wind? But even more powerfully, it's as if to say, uh, this might have been a saying like, a person, who, a person who doesn't stand on their convictions is a person, a reed easily blown by the wind. And he's, same thing, it's like, did you go out to see someone who just said things you already knew? Did you go out to listen to someone proclaim a message that you'd already heard? No, you went out to see a person who was declaring something countercultural. Second question, did you go out to see someone well-dressed, right? A man dressed in soft clothing. Right. Did you go out to see a man dressed well? No, you went out to see a man who was bucking the trends of culture, even in the way he dressed. He was wearing camel hair. After all, those who wear soft clothing, Jesus says, are the ones living in king's houses. You don't have to go out into the wilderness to see people dressed funny or see people dressed well. You could go to the king's palace. What then did you go see? And then he begins to tell us who John really is. A prophet? 
Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Now, this is powerful. For the people listening, that wouldn't have even existed. That's like saying, is he a superhero? Yes, he's even more than a superhero. You're kind of like, how, how, how do you become more than? Right? How, do you, how, do you, how are you more than this? And so for these people to hear that someone was greater than at least up to this point, a person who was as great as they'd ever heard, more than a prophet in their tradition, he says, ultimately, this is a fulfillment in verse 10 of something that's right out of Malachi chapter 3. Let me read it to you. Behold, Malachi says, this is the last prophetic word before Jesus is born. 400 years pass of silence, of, of not hearing from God. And, and Malachi says, you're going to know that the kingdom is coming because a prophet is going to come. And, and it's going to be special. There's going to be a long period of silence, and this prophet will come, and he will be the last. And yet, he will be the precursor for something else. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the, prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that this one that has come as a messenger, as a prophet, this one, John, is the fulfillment of the prophet Malachi. So just stop for a minute and listen to what Jesus just did. John came to Jesus wanting to know about him, and what proceeds afterward is, John, or is, is Jesus telling everyone about who John is. And friend, if, you, if you're in this room and at least somewhat influenced by the culture in which we live, who you really are is something you've probably struggled with. In a Western individualistic society, it's something we all wrestle with. Who am I really? And it's hard to find out. It's difficult to find out. And yet I want to propose to you the possibility, the way, right, if, if you meet someone who's, I, I say this regularly, like just to kind of poke at it, but have you ever met someone who's trying to find themselves, right? And that's what, like, I'm trying to find myself. I want to go find myself. I joke with this, but it's, it's true even in my life and the lives of people I know. Is like, people who are trying to find themselves, they found themselves. They just didn't like what they found, and they're running. I, wonder if, I don't like what I found. I'm going to go look somewhere else, right? And they often sound like, I'm never going to come back to whatever. And you're like, okay, welcome back, right? This is who we are. This is, this is a part of our culture, finding ourselves, understanding ourselves. This is what our children's books are often about in the last few decades. And I propose to you a mystery that will feel like an offense. If you want to know who you really are, start by asking who Jesus really is. And so if you're in this room and, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you Maybe you have questions like John. Maybe you wouldn't consider yourself a believer. Maybe you're not sure. I'm so grateful you're here because we're going we're gonna to come at some of these things in a different way. It's common, right? It's common if someone were to say, like, who are you? Right? Even, even, even if I ask you, who are you? The, where do we look to find out the answer? And, and, and our, our typical understanding in a Western culture, I'll get more to that in just a minute, is to look inside for the answer. Like, who are you? Who would know? And, and, the, and the assumption is that you would know. And we have a profound mystery that will be offensive at first, but will lead to great freedom. When we want to know who we are, we stop and we listen to what Jesus says. Now, here's the good news before I explain and kind of explicate a little bit of this. That's because what Jesus says about you is better than what you say. It's because he knows you better than you know yourself. And what he says is a whole lot better than what you say about yourself. Even, I mean, even on your best day, the nicest thing you could think and say about yourself isn't even close to what Jesus says about you. But look at what he does. He says, if you want to know who John is, I'm the one who tells you. And Jesus goes on to explain it and says there's a, a prophetic fulfillment here, something that's going on. John is a messenger preparing the way for what I'm doing, Jesus says. So much that he says he's more than a prophet, right? Even, even think, like, how nice a thing could that person have said about themselves or the other people have said, oh, he's a prophet. And Jesus does exactly what I just said. He says, no, no, he's actually more than that. He says something nicer, something even greater. But it begs the question, 
that is written into, I think, the theme running through this passage that Jesus is the one who tells John who he is, not the other way around. And Jesus is the one who tells us who we are, not the other way around. John came asking about Jesus, and what proceeds is a powerful discourse about the kingdom in John. And it begs the question, who has the right and the identity to tell you who you are? Who is the right, who is the power, the authority to tell you who you are? Do you have the right to give yourself an identity? Do you have the authority to tell others who you are and to tell yourself who you are? Does your community or context, does it have the authority and right to give you an identity? Maybe ask it this way, are you born into an identity? Are you born into who you are and it's fixed? Or is it dynamic and flexible and and you can change who you are? Make no mistake about it, these are the questions that most of us are asking whether we realize it or not. And at least for the last few decades, we kind of come and go on this depending on where you are in the culture. We're wrestling with how to answer this question. If you don't believe me, again, Put it, in, put it in, in stark terms. I want, I want this to be concrete so you can apply this, right? Like, who tells you about your sexuality? Where do you get a gender? Where do you get joy and happiness and contentment? Right? Where, where do you get these meaningful things? Where do they come from? Are they something that someone else gives to you or are they something you give to yourself? These are the questions we're wrestling, at, we're wrestling about and frankly doing very poorly. And so here's the thing. Christians shouldn't be afraid of those questions or those conversations. We know what it's like to wrestle with who we are. We know what it's like to begin to see our sin and our brokenness and frailty and not like it and really wish that wasn't true about us. We know what it's like to then put on a mask and pretend we're something else. And we know in Christ what it's like to hear his freedom and care and comfort come to us in grace. And so, friend, these are questions. Man, if you have these kinds of questions, come to Jesus with them. And don't leave him alone until he answers. Granted, expect him to answer the question you didn't really ask, right? So absolutely, here's one of the ways you know that the gospel of the kingdom has come. One of the ways that you know that you're seeing Jesus rightly is that you're experiencing what's described here, is that Jesus begins to tell you who you really are. This even helps us understand morality, right? One of the ways I've illustrated, I've given kind of a few illustrations. One is we often think about a thing in, like with a moral or, or some sort of ethical value. And I, I usually ask it like this, like, hey, how do you know that a thing is good? Right? So how do you know that a person is good? And the way that we often answer that, again, it has to do with like, well, well it depends who gets to say. But But ultimately, when we think about a thing, we don't know if it's good or bad until we know what it's for. I know that's grammatically incorrect, but English is a fluid language here, being rhetorical, right? We don't know if a thing is good or bad until we know what it's for. What was it made for? What's its purpose? And the analogy I use is this. This this watch was a gift, a wonderful little bit of health and technology, right? All right here. But imagine for just a moment that, that, I, that I, was, I was walking around the building and saw maybe nails that were coming out of the trim or out of the sheetrock, and I, and I took the watch off, and I began to hammer in nails with this watch. Now stop for a minute. You'd have to think, like, is this watch any good? And in that moment where I was trying to hammer in nails with the watch, I might be deceived into thinking, this watch is no good. What a piece of junk. But you see the point, don't you? You don't know if it's any good until you know what it's for. That's not what it was designed for. In the same way that you shouldn't look to a hammer to tell time. You don't know if it's good until you know what it's for. And that is also true of humanity. You don't know the value of a human until you know what it's for. And we are given this great gift that we are created in God's image, that every one of you, Your purpose and value and meaning is that you reflect your creator. 
right? In the same way, right, that this, you know, this watch reflects the, I mean, I think it says in the back, designed by Apple, right? They, they're, not, they're not humble about it, right? We did this, right? But like in the same way that a hammer reflects brightly on its creator. When you see it used properly, you begin to think, wow, this is a good thing. This is a good idea. So also, when you see the beauty of the creator of the universe imaged, little statues, little pictures of him walking around, in all, crawling around, right? In all of us, you begin to see our purpose and our beauty and our meaning. That's because we don't know who we are until we know who Jesus is. And when you begin to, the second illustration I would say is when you begin to see that, you'll begin to realize that it's radically countercultural. That is that if, if you're receiving, maybe you're, from, uh, I mean, maybe you're from a more authoritarian background or culture, even country, right? If you're from a more authoritarian, uh, right, even, you know, even this is like a communistic view of, of a person, if you're from a more oppressive or repressive place, Christians are revolutionary and countercultural. Because, because those in authoritarian power come along and say, this is who you are. And what do Christians come along and say? They say, you don't get to tell me who I am. Christ alone tells me who I am. And so our Christian brothers and sisters, right, meeting underground in places like northern Yemen, right, or, or places where they're, they're not allowed to public, like they're revolutionary because they're not allowed to publicly say this revolutionary, offensive thing. You don't get to tell me who I am. Jesus tells me who I am. And so that's one of the ways you know that you're loyal to Jesus and not just kind of this false view of yourself is that your view of yourself in light of Jesus begins to rub against your surroundings. Well, now let's apply it. That's kind of applied to if, if you're from a more authoritarian, repressive, right, uh, more, more kind of uh, more power-centric background, but what if you're from a more, let's say, Western? What if you're from a more individualistic? What if you're from, right, a more licentious, or in this case, a, right, a more open or libertarian view of the world? Well, here's the catch. The same thing happens. Because in that view of the world, you construct yourself. You get to say who you are. But here's the catch. In the same way that if you're from a more authoritarian, oppressive culture and the gospel sets you free, so also does the gospel, who Jesus says we are in him, sets us free from that individualism. Because here's what you need to know about individualism. It is not freedom to get to say who you are. Because down deep, you know how fickle you really are. You change your mind every 30 seconds. And you go back and forth from thinking you're awesome and terrible. And while one of these kind of small, let's say, worldly or earthly views of the self seems like victory, right? For those of us who are slave to individualism, it's like, well, jump in, man. Be a brick in the wall. Let's go. And for the rest of us who are like, that sounds awful. I'm liberated by saying who I am. The good news cuts both ways. The good news of what Jesus says about us that's better than anything you could say about yourself liberates us from worldly views of ourselves that are oppressive and also that are falsely liberating. And Jesus comes along and says, look, I give you something else. And here's the thing. You might say, who, who, right? Who is Jesus to tell me who I am? That's offensive. Now you're getting it. Now you're starting to get it. Now you're starting to hear it. After all, the last words of verse 6 that we read, Jesus ends by saying, blessed are those who are not offended, scandalized by what I say. But look at the lesson here. John comes to Jesus to find out who he is and leaves knowing. Where John sends people to come to find out who Jesus is, and by the end of the passage, we know who John is. Friend, I have good news. You can come to Jesus and find out who you really are. And what he says about you and what he does for you is better than anything else, anyone else, or anything else in the world can offer. Second thing we see beginning 
And kind of the next little section here is, is the picture of the place where we spend probably most of our time, this picture of violence, right? If the first part is that we find identity in Jesus, the, the, the second thing, this, this profound statement, is that the good news of Christ's kingdom is fiercely jarring. Now, that phrase, right? Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is... Oh, I'm just getting ahead. Uh, or, yes, yes. Um, no one born among women has risen uh, uh, greater than John the Baptist, yet, no one, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater even than he. And then he, he jumps in and says that from the days of John the Baptist, as if like this era of this new prophet saying that he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. If you look up five different translations, you will find five dif- dip- completely different things here. If you listen to five different sermons on this text, you will likely hear five different things. And so here's, here's where, where we get to kind of dig back into what we saw in the last few chapters. When Jesus speaks to people, he speaks with levels of meaning. One is the level of meaning that's like specifically for the people that are listening to him that apply to them in that moment. Right? So, for example, in the previous chapter, he sent them out into Galilee. Well, that applied to those disciples in that moment. That doesn't necessarily apply to us. That's where you get to the second kind of level of meaning. That, that applies not just to the people immediately listening to them in that context, but people beyond who would follow. So, for instance, we're not sent to Galilee. Next, I don't think maybe you're being called to move to Galilee and be a missionary. I don't know. But as it stands, we're, we're called to be among the nations, right? To, to be witnesses of this good news of Jesus from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's us, right? Ends of the earth, right here. And so there's levels of meaning that apply for his followers beyond. And then there's other layers of meaning that are simply what we'll call apocalyptic. That is that they're, they're referring to a mystery that will be revealed, they're referring to something that's intentionally cryptic. And I say intentionally because when Jesus does this, and he does it often, he's doing it so that you will be confounded by the mystery and trust him. Right? With our own kind of Western enlightened view, we come to Jesus and we say something like, what is the meaning of this mystery? And Jesus responds, the mystery is the meaning. If you understood it, you wouldn't worship the one who does. And so we regularly, we come to Jesus where he confounds with these, with these mysterious things. And I, I, I'm going to say this just so you won't be shocked by it. Because, right, we, we come to Jesus and we're like, well, Jesus is mysterious. Uh, but surely, surely, right, uh, surely someone as smart as I and intelligent as I can figure it out. And he's like, no, actually, I revealed this to children, right? Well, surely someone as, you know, as, as mature and righteous as I will understand this. And he's like, no, actually, this is a stumbling block. This is the folly. This is the folly. This is the, the wisdom of God working in a way that looks foolish to the world, right? These kinds of mysterious things are not uncommon. They're meant to stir us up, and they're meant to call us to worship and trust Jesus. That is, that if you had the full answer to this, you wouldn't need Jesus. And he intentionally is ambiguous about some of these things. So let's begin to kind of look through these layers. One, he says, there's a violence that the kingdom is ultimately suffering. It's in a passive voice. That is, someone's attacking the kingdom. Something awful is is happening. Something powerful is taking place. Something violent, something jarring, something shocking. Something that even is probably beyond our ability to understand. And so... For those listening, that was literally true. John would be beheaded and never make it out of, make, make it out of, out of prison. And yet, was that because he had failed? Was that because God's will had not transpired? No. In fact, God's will was done. This messenger came in the, in the tradition of prophets who have been rejected. And yet, was the victim of great violence. It was literally to Jesus and his disciples would have threats of violence and experience actual violence. And yet, if you read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6 says that that violence actually propelled the gospel. They were sent to the nations, but they stayed in Jerusalem until what happened? 
the violent martyr of Stephen in chapter 6 scatters the people with the gospel to where now you and I have heard it. And in that moment, you might think, that's a failure. Okay, Stephen's a big deal. Killing Stephen, that's going to hurt us. This is probably going to kill our movement. Nope. The sign of our movement is the sign of what would have been hopeless, and yet through great sorrow and pain and even violence, the cross is a symbol of victory. And so the people immediately hearing that, the people immediately experiencing this, would have known this in a powerful way. People were going to be beaten, and they were going to be killed. But that wouldn't be the end. In the moment that they would think that all is lost, that would be the moment of the kingdom advancing. Did you hear the second part of it? Not only is the kingdom, the, the, the reign of Christ is, in, is being a victim of violence, but violent ones are advancing and are taking it by force. Something powerful is, and jarring is taking place. Something shocking, something radical, something ferocious and fierce, something forceful, powerful, potent, Intense and even aggressive is, at, is in play. And those who have gotten the kingdom and see it know this. So, remember I told you there's a million different ways to explain it? Let's eliminate some that he's not saying. One, he's not saying that the kingdom and followers of Jesus in this case are commanded to engage in physical violence. This isn't new. We've already seen this, right? He said in the very last chapter, I came to bring the sword. But what was he talking about? He wasn't talking about going and killing your family. He was saying that the sword of grace will separate you from the world. And you will have adversity even from inside your own family. And we would hate for that to be true, right? We would love to think, oh no, I've raised this child. This child will believe what I believe. No, that's not how we get into the kingdom, right? And so we've already seen this. Jesus never commanded his disciples to take up arms and fight. In fact, that's exactly what he told Pilate. He said, if I were, were going to bring a kingdom here, we'd already be taking swords and we would have already done that. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. So he's not saying that you and I are supposed to take up arms. We're not supposed to take up weapons to bring about the kingdom by physical violence. And yet he's saying something intentionally offensive so that we would get a picture for what's really going on. That is that the kingdom is spiritually violent. It's spiritually, it comes in spiritual violence. And that shouldn't shock us. The act of God becoming a man is an offensive spiritual violence. When you think about, and we just, again, this is, this is right on the heels of celebrating Advent and Christmas together the perfect and righteous and spotless God of the universe being born without a place to stay and laid in a place where animals fed. Can you imagine a more spiritually violent thing to do to offend God than to say to the creator of the universe, nah, how about you fit your, you know, the whole universe, no, but we've got this spot where the pig's been eaten, Right? This shouldn't shock us. This is a spiritually shocking, it's a spiritually revolutionary and radical thing. And when people see that and understand that, they become spiritually radical themselves. That is that what the kingdom is bringing and doing will not be seen by the tame, by the impotent, and the ineffectual. What God is bringing and doing is powerful. It is cataclysmic. Nothing will be the same ever again. And the people who know that get the kingdom and they get Jesus. It's as if to say that one of the worst places you could be is to find yourself saying something like, well, I'm a Christian, but let's don't make a fuss about it. I believe in Jesus, but that's nothing to write home about. I follow Jesus, but I mean, that's not a real big deal. He says, if that's the case, then you have not heard and understood the good news of Christ's kingdom at all. The kingdom comes in revolutionary ways. And so, this is what kingdom people will begin to look like. 
And one of my encouragements, even for you today, is to begin to think about how have I possibly tamed, pacified, or even tried to domesticate the gospel so that it's calm, collected, and neat, and ultimately under my control. Because if that's the case, then you haven't met Jesus. Jesus comes and abruptly interrupts history. He abruptly overtakes the story of existence. And I say this with as much care as I possibly, as much as I possibly can. One of the, probably one of the best words to, to describe this is to say that the kingdom is traumatic and it advances traumatically. And I say that with care because I know some of you in this room who have been victims of actual trauma know what that's like. Nothing's the same. Your story is completely different. And in many ways, you might understand the kingdom better than the rest of us. The rest of us who think like, oh, we'll just, oh, we'll just sweep that under the rug. We'll just go back to the way things were. Or we'll just kind of keep an even keel. We'll stuff it down and act like it's never happened. Friend, that's, that's the best way to indicate that you have not heard the good news of Jesus. The kingdom is jarring. And like a traumatic event, Christ coming to take on the sins of the world and free us from the bounds of sin and death means that nothing will be the same again. Nothing. The kingdom is life-changing. It's revolutionary. And revolutionaries are the ones who get the kingdom. But here's the catch. It means that our revolutionary and radical loyalty is to the things of this king. So our confidence in this great accomplishment of Christ is confidence that is radical and humble. That is the ferocity of our kingdom citizenship is the ferocity of our humility and love, the ferocity of our gentleness. Here's a second thing I think we see in light of a, an earth-shattering, violent kingdom, something that's jarring, that, that ultimately Christ has done something that will change everything. John comes to him with a question, who are you, Jesus? Ultimately being like, why am I in prison? And this is kind of Jesus' answer, like, hey, when you get your purpose, when you realize this, it changes everything. And you shouldn't be shocked if you get thrown in prison. After all, don't be shocked when you tell the earthly king that that earthly king has no authority over you. And you're like, I don't have to follow you, I do what Jesus says. Every earthly king is going to go like, oh yeah? And so you shouldn't be shocked that John is in prison. But, but I want you to see that the radical nature of this is, is counterculture in the way that we typically think of confidence or radicality. That is, the radical nature of Christ's kingdom that is fiercely jarring is fiercely jarring because it's grace. Grace comes abruptly and violently. It violently lays hold of our own self-reliance and sin. Right? It is an offense to, self, to tell someone right, who has worked very hard to be very good, upper Midwesterners, right? To tell that person who has worked very hard to be very good so that people and God will love them that their best efforts to be righteous are filthy and disposable. And that that kind of pride is something that God opposes. You get it? You think it kind of almost incites violence, right? I mean, we're Midwesterners. We would, we would keep it quiet, Right? But where does that kind of confidence to say such a thing come, come from? It's from seeing who Jesus is rather than who we are. Let me illustrate this. Uh, I, I, heard, I heard one pastor describe it this way, and it's been, it changed my life as I thought about it. But, but often, like for example now, if I might come to you and I would say something like, all the things, if I might, I just did. <laughs> Having said all the things that I've said, that Christ says who you are. That Christ brings a kingdom that's radically different from the kingdom you, you feel loyalty toward. There, your first instinct, especially maybe if you're not a Christian, would be like, how are you so arrogant, right? Who are you to say these things? But it's only arrogance if you believe that that's true because of something that you've done. It is radical humility when you have confidence in it because it's a gift. 
Let me illustrate it, right? We're in, we're in I, I try to keep sports out of, out of this stage, but sometimes I can't help it. It's just, I think in terms of sports and food and stuff like that. So here we go. But you're going to hear a lot of teams playing important football games today and the weeks to come. And they're going to talk about, and, and, and just imagine like if they were to say, we're going to win. Victory is ours. Victory is ours. Now, if you like that team, then that probably feels good. But ultimately, for that to be true is a statement about themselves and their ability to achieve or accomplish, isn't it? In fact, that's what would make it offensive if you were, for example, on the other team and you were like, that's not true. I'm right. We're going to win, right? And so, for example, if, if I say to you that Christ gives me an identity that's better than any identity I can understand or even experience in the world, and that what Christ does for me gives me a radically new kingdom that changes everything, you might think that's arrogant, but that's because you think the kingdom comes by your effort or that it comes by mine. And so when an athlete and today or in the weeks to come says, we're going to win, it's arrogant because they're talking about their own ability. But friend, it's not arrogant when we say that Christ is victorious and good because it's a gift any more than it's arrogant for you to say, this is what I got for Christmas, right? A person who knows what they've received has confidence in it, and that is a profound humility. And I would argue you only have that kind of assurance when you know it's a gift. And that, my friend, is violent and revolutionary. When you start living in this world with a deep confidence that all you have is a gift that God has given you by grace, it's violent. It changes everything. No one will like that. No one will understand that. I mean, if you want to live in a world of achievement and earn your way to the top, by all means, go. But, but for us, we actually find that's arrogant. Radical humility, revolutionary, potent humility is when you realize that all you have is but a gift. Here's the third thing. It means that when he says the violent lay hold of it, that is the King James would say the violent bear it away, right? The, the idea that like it's forcefully advancing through difficulty. I have two different things I want to say to this. One, it means that if Jesus has given you this gift, it's on us now to be radical about it. Be radical. Use spiritually violent terms. I commend to you one of the, one of the there's, there's paraphrases that are better, but John Owen uh, writes a book called The Mortification of Sin. Well, mortification is called killing. That's a nice Puritan way to say killing. You would say, oh, the mortification, that's killing. And his quote that's paraphrased by me and others is that you will either be killing sin or it will be killing you. And for a person who knows the price and radicality of this kingdom, that makes sense. And so I can say to you, because of what Christ has done and the radical thing that he's accomplished that has abruptly interrupted all of history, go and abruptly interrupt sin. Go this week, fight sin in the power of Christ. War against it. Fight against pride, fight against doubt, war against self-reliance, war against self-righteousness. Do not see them as things that you sit by and watch. See them as something that, that as a combatant you jump in with Christ against. Buck the trend, be radical about it. Take hold of what Christ has given you and hold on to it with ferocity. My hope is to, in this sense, arouse a spiritual violence and vitality in you against sin, against the things that would rob you of a radical joy in this life. Not to sit around casually waiting. Not to talk about the church as though it's a casual club. And not to talk about our mission as though it's a, a matter of convenience or comfort and not to talk about what Christ has done for us in a way that dismisses what it cost him. After all, when we celebrate at the Lord's table and we meet for communion, don't we declare a weird and bloody thing that we have life and life abundant because the author of life was broken and poured out for us? Here's the second thing. It means that you will be aware of the ways that Christ is moving in the world through difficulty. After all, for them to experience violence 
maybe for these original followers, would have been the worst possible thing. And what does Jesus say? This kingdom is advancing through violence. And even for them, it might have been the darkest day when Christ died on that cross. And they were huddling in a house, probably wondering what they ought to do next. And I bet after he, Jesus appears to them, you, they begin to remember, oh, this isn't the end. Violence may be a threat that earthly kingdoms can offer, but that's all they can offer. They can't stop what God is doing. And so that means that when they saw what would look like the worst possible circumstance, they would know that Christ was still at work in them. And friend, I want to encourage you in the same way. When you are in a circumstance that seems bleak and hopeless, hang on for a moment. It won't get the last word. And here's the powerful thing. Christ's kingdom will be advancing through it. He will be present in that in ways that I can't even put into words. Christ is doing something amazing in the suffering and in the awfulness. The awfulness that you and I are experiencing does not get the last word because we have a confidence that is deep humility that what we have ultimately is a gift. This earth-shattering gift changes everything. Here's what this means. If Christ's kingdom comes by his cross, then this means that our darkest days might actually be the place where Christ is most powerfully present and at work. Let me put it in very personal terms. I've never lost a parent. But you have. I've never lost a child, but you have. I've never been through a miscarriage personally, but you have. I've never gotten a bleak prognosis from the doctor, but you have. I've never experienced some traumatic loss in my own life, but you have. And it's possible that Christ is advancing and present in that kingdom in that moment more than any sermon I will ever preach. And what seems like to the world a bleak and awful, violent circumstance is the place where Jesus miraculously shows his glory. The place where the earth and the world would look and say, we got him, <laughs> Right? is the place where Jesus brings the most hope. Now, here's the last section. You might be saying to yourself, that's crazy. That's, that's, that's beyond anything I can imagine. But if you find yourself going like, that's too much, that's crazy, what does Jesus say you're like? You're like a whiny child on the playground. <laughs> that is, to reject Jesus isn't just to reject who he is. It's to, it's to intentionally grab hold of something else. And to reject Jesus is, that in his own words, to choose to be a whiny, petulant child. One commentarian uh, calls it to be peevish. I got to use that word more, right? Jesus compares those who would reject his earth-shattering kingdom to whiny children in a bad mood, right? I, I, I can't you're going to see more about this next week as he speaks about the judgment, and we'll kind of connect the dots. But for, for the purpose of today, when when people hear his words, but they, but they think they're, they're worthless, Jesus compared them in chapter 7 to what? People who tried to build their house on sand, and the storm comes, and it's destroyed. Well, it's more fun this time. It's like, if you reject the claims of Jesus, he's like, you're like a whiny child. And I don't know that I can really put it into words, uh, but that you're peevish, churlish, petty, obnoxious, cantankerous, grouchy, cranky, crotchety, grumpy, discontent. You can be offended by Jesus. You can be shocked by Jesus. You can even be changed forever by Jesus, but you cannot be indifferent. And if you think you are, then you're like a whiny child who, we get this picture, they're like, hey, let's sing a happy song. And they're like, Megan, I, I can't really put, I have to do an imitation or impersonation more than I can really explain it. And I think you'll understand why, even if it's not very good. But it's like, 
Hey, I'm going to play the flute, and we're going to sing unhappy song and dance. I don't want it. Okay, well, do you want to sing a sad song and mourn? I don't want it. Some of that, if that was too far-fetched, I would love for you to serve in Kids Connection. It'll make all, all, it all makes sense. You'd be like, do you want to? I apologize. You're never going to get that picture out of your mind anymore. I apologize for that. But that's what he compares. Like if, 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 if the radical claims of Jesus seem crazy to you, he says, great, you're like a petulant child. I don't want to do this. And then he gives an example. John came with a, a message of judgment and repentance and ferocity. Repent, the kingdom is here. And people say, he's crazy. He has a demon. And then Jesus came with a message of grace and inclusion, eating and dining with friends with tax collectors and sinners. And what they say? Oh, he's a, just a drunk and a glutton. And so, friend, you can be offended by Jesus. You can have your life changed by Jesus, but you cannot simply be dismissive of Jesus. After all, that doesn't even take seriously what Jesus says. Anyone who makes these kinds of claims is either who he says he is or crazy. So, friend, how would we know this, and why would, like, why would we run to this? It's very simple, and I'll wrap up on this. Christ brings history-altering violence upon sin, death, and hell by enduring history-altering violence on himself. The best illustration I find for this is Hebrews chapter 2. The author of Hebrews tells us, since then the children share in flesh and blood. He's giving a picture of what Christ has done, how Christ has come to endure violence, and in these things he says that he himself likewise partook of the same things. What same things, you might ask? That through death, that's the same things. He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Did you hear that? He took on a great act of violence, namely death, to put to death that violent accuser that is death. And does what? Verse 15 says, delivers us. All of those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Did you hear it? Jesus puts to death our enemy. The reason he invites us to a a spiritually earth-shattering thing is because he endured it himself. He is the one who ultimately endured violence, but not for its own sake. He endured that violence to blow a decisive and violent blow to sin, death, and hell. Imagine Christ here and see what we get to savor in Jesus. He being the victim of the most violent death inflicted. Like No one endured such violence as Jesus. And yet in it, see the violence that he inflicted upon sin, death, hell, and everything that reigns over us in this life. No one endured such violence as Jesus, but friend, no one inflicted such violence than that which he inflicted upon sin, death, and hell. And he, in enduring great violence... He, in enduring great trauma, distress, betrayal, offers freedom, freedom, liberation, hope in all of the places where it didn't previously exist. Death is still our violent enemy. It still wants to plunder us. It wants to rob us of hope. Sin is still our ever-present violent enemy. It wants to rob us of joy, but it's defanged. Its bite has no more poison. The deadly sting is now gone because of Christ. The power that the enemy had to accuse us of sin has been taken from him, for he can no longer accuse us of that which Christ has forgiven. He can now no, no longer hold over us that which Christ has endured to set us free. No one endured such violence, even in condescending to humanity than Jesus. But friend, hear the good news in the kingdom that advances through it. No one inflicted such violence than what Christ inflicted upon sin when he raised from the dead on the third day. And that's not arrogance. That's revolutionary, earth-shattering confidence and a gift. And Jesus offers it to you to me. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for what you have done for us in Christ. Uh, Thank you that you have come to display how good and kind you are to us. 
And thank you that in so doing, you didn't avoid the thing that weighs on us, that is our own suffering and pain and death, but instead you took them on yourself. If there's some in this room, maybe they're still struggling with the question of John, who are you and who am I? Might even today they begin to, uh, with their own imagination, ask that question to you. And might you answer them in a powerful way by telling them who you are, that you are a redeemer, that you are a savior, you are a friend, and by telling them who they are, that they are accepted, forgiven, loved, and adopted. Might we see who you are and receive in light of that who we are. Maybe for the rest of us, we wrestle with knowing what to do then in light of who we are and the struggles that we face. Might we see the victory of Jesus through struggle as our means of hope. Might we begin to look to you for joy. Might we look to you, the triune God, for all these things. That whatever the world tells us, whatever suffering tells us, we will say, that's not who I am. I am who the creator of the universe, my father, tells me I am. I am who the redeemer of the universe, my savior, tells me I am. I am who the spirit and sustainer and comforter tells me that I am. Might that be our declaration in the midst of deep pain and sorrow. And Lord, might that stir in us something that to the rest of the world looks like revolution, that looks like ferocity, a deep confidence and abiding hope and a gift that we received. Might we look revolutionary and countercultural in the ways that we find our hope and joy in Jesus. We ask this as a gift we mean to receive by faith. Amen.